Welcome to the audiobook speakeasy. I'm Rich Miller, and I'm your host here at the speakeasy. I've met many audiobook professionals and avid listeners on my journey as an audiobook narrator, and I'm looking forward to introducing them to you. So come on in, grab a drink, pull up a chair, and enjoy a friendly chat about audiobooks and audiobook production. Joining me tonight in the speakeasy is a prolific narrator, a well-known audiobook narration coach, and frequent contributor at audiobook workshops around the world. A man I'm proud to call my coach and my friend, Sean Pratt. Thanks for joining me in the speakeasy tonight. <laughs> Hi, how you doing? <laughs> I'm doing good. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's the end of the day. It's time for a drink. That's and, right. Uh, so what are you drinking tonight? Well, actually, I am, I am keeping with a local theme now that I've, I am currently living, uh, in Oklahoma City, that's where I was born and raised. Oh. I'm back here keeping an eye on my mom for a while. Yeah, and uh, keeping her out of bar fights, you know, out of jail as you do. With <laughs> I'm, so, I'm, I'm I'm definitely going to want to be asking you about your childhood then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I'm I'm actually drinking to, to keep with the old local flavor. I'm 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 doing a beer and a bourbon. So the beer I'm drinking is a called Gold Miner Ale. It's made by Chalk Beer, which is out of Krebs, Oklahoma. Chalk is short for Choctaw. Ah. It was a it was a brewer brewery that uh, came around, I think, right before statehood in 1907, I think it was. And so they've been around for a long, long time. And uh, Krebs is up in the northeastern portion of the state, and so it's got a sort of a wheat kind of flavor. It's sort of dry. That's and, great. I and, love drinking local. Yeah, I like I, I, I'm a big supporter of local stuff. And then to chase it down with, I've got um, uh, I I went to school in Moore, Oklahoma, which is the town just south of Oklahoma City. Uh, it's sandwiched in between Oklahoma City and Norman, Oklahoma, which is where the university's at, mm-hmm. University of Oklahoma. So uh, here in Moore, Oklahoma, there is a brewer, uh, uh, distillery, and so I'm drinking Scissor Tail Bourbon. Scissor oh Tail my is god. The, I can't, I, I can't wait bird. to tell you my drink. Okay, so go ahead. Uh, so it's the state It's the state bird, and they make a, a number of different bourbons and whiskeys there. But uh, this is a pretty good one. It's not It's not too strong. It's a light-flavored bourbon, and it seems to go well, at least to my taste buds. It goes well with the uh, the ale. I, I tend to be one of those guys. I like to drink it like a really dry, almost bitter IPA mm-hmm. with a sweet kind of bourbon on the side. I like to... I like the interplay of the flavors. So. That's great. Well, if you need a couple of seconds at some point to uh, make it a depth charge and drop the bourbon into the <laughs> beer and then down the entire thing, you just let me know. <laughs> Do an Irish car bomb. With there the, you go. The, <laughs> well, well, that is great to hear that you're drinking scissor tail because uh, my my story about what I'm drinking tonight is that I was I I knew that you were out there in Oklahoma. And I thought, I'm going to get the perfect drink, right? So I look online for distilleries in Oklahoma. Now, I figure Oklahoma, it's kind of the buckle of the Bible belt. It's also right there in the bourbon belt, I thought. So I figured, out there's going to be a lot of distilleries. There really aren't that many distilleries in Oklahoma. Nope. One of them that I found made scissor tail bourbon. So I thought, that's what I'm going to buy, right? So I went all over Tucson looking for it. Couldn't find it. I haven't been able to contact them yet to find out where they distribute. It's very possible that they just distribute locally. I don't know. It could so be. I, I looked for that. They also make, I, I believe it's the same company that makes uh, um, lead. Uh, lead Slinger. Lead Slinger. Yeah, Lead yeah. Slingers. That's the yeah. other one. But couldn't find them here. So I thought, well, okay, I'm 
I'm going to drink bourbon anyway because I know you're a bourbon fan, so I'm just going to go with mm-hmm. bourbon. So I've got my uh, Four Roses single barrel, there which is go. out of Kentucky like most bourbon or a lot of right. bourbon. And I figure, well, it's only two states away from Oklahoma, whereas it's four or five states away from Arizona, depending on how you look at the map. (laughs) So I figured I would do that. However, I am doing one thing that I hope makes it a little more appropriate for a discussion with you. About six years ago, I had the uh, great pleasure to be in a play, uh, one of the last two plays I was in in the Bay Area before I left. And you know how a lot of times when you're in theater, people will bring in opening night gifts for all all the castmates? Oh, yeah. One of my castmates, there's a scene in this play where I'm standing out on the porch with my back to the audience and I'm drinking whiskey. And one of my my, uh, castmates had glasses made for everybody. And I thought that for me, it was perfect because it's a rocks glass. And on one side is engraved Bill, which was my character name. And on the other side is engraved August Osage County, 2011. Oh, sure. So I figured this is great. All right. So at least I have a glass that has something to do with Oklahoma, even there if I go. couldn't find the Oklahoma bourbon. That's great. That's great. <laughs> so cheers. Cheers. Cheers to you, Tink. Here we go. I was going to open the, the bottle of beer with a good I couldn't wait any longer. Well, that's great. Okay. A couple of bourbons and you can have the beer and and we're all set. Mm-hmm. So you're out there in Oklahoma. Um, did you say that you're in Moore? I'm actually on, I'm right, a, literally a street away from Moore. I'm on the, the very edge of South Oklahoma City. Okay. Um, <clears throat> my mom lives uh, at the very edge. She actually lives, uh, this is, uh, her house was destroyed in a tornado about uh, two years ago, three years ago. Oh, wow. Uh, it hits, it just, it went right through Moore. It, uh, uh, and it wiped out her neighborhood, basically. Wow. And uh, but she got a brand new house out of it, so that's a pretty cool thing. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> so, uh, so yes, I'm I'm right here at the very edge of South Oklahoma City and more. And and, and you said you grew up in Oklahoma. Is is that specifically where you grew up? Right where where the house was? Uh, not really. I we actually grew. We we lived in uh, Moore, Oklahoma. It was a bedtime community in the '60s and '70s when I was growing up, and then we moved out to near Lake Thunderbird. For those of you who know uh, Oklahoma very well, it's sort of <laughs> a little closer to Norman. Uh, all the lakes in Oklahoma, by the way, are all of them are man-made. There's not a single natural lake in Oklahoma. Wow, they're all dammed up. And uh, but uh, that was still within the Moore School District. So I. I'm a graduate of uh, Moore High School, class of '84. Go Lions! And uh, uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, I've I've lived in and around this area my entire life, Oak, South Oklahoma City. And my, my my father's family is from South Oklahoma, in uh, Sulphur, which is near the Texas border, and they also come from Arkansas. They're Scotch and and Cherokee Indian, although you wouldn't know to look at me. And then my mother's family is all Irish. I was going to say, when you said Scotch, I thought I thought it was Ireland because, geez, look at that yeah. hair. Yeah, my mom's family uh, comes from somewhere near Dublin. Don't know where. It's uh. been too long. And then they immigrated over before the turn of the last century and uh, made their way down through Chicago, I guess, into Oklahoma City back in the day. And so... That's, uh, that's where you ended up. So you have any uh, brothers and sisters? Yeah, I have an older sister, Kathy. Uh, she's in, and then a younger brother, Kurt. And, uh, Kathy has lived here uh, pretty much all her life, and she's you know she's had kids, and now she's a grandmother, and uh, she's in her late fifties. And then my my little brother, my little brother, who's 
getting ready. He's in his late 40s. Uh, he and his wife are retired Navy, and they live up in Paradise, Michigan, right in the upper uh, the UP, mm-hmm. right on the lake where it snows, you know, feet and feet of snow every year. But yeah. that's what they like. And uh, some so, people yeah, do like students. that. Oh my God, I can't imagine. <laughs> <laughs> Neither can I. My sister-in-law lives in Wyoming, and we always get reports in yeah, mid to late August about the first snow, and I'm just oh. thinking, ah, oh, it's not for me. So Tucson, not really a problem. We actually do get snow here. We're up in the foothills a little, and, and even mm-hmm. Tucson proper is higher than a lot of people think. So it actually does snow every two, three, five years, something like that, but it never sticks. And uh, not oh, down no. here in the lowlands anyway. But yeah. I live right south of the foothills, and we get nice view of the dusted mountains in the winter. Oh, that's pretty. I went to school yeah. in Santa Fe, New Mexico. and Oh, nice and, up there. And so we would, yeah, sometimes we would really get a good snow, but that was like maybe once a year. Yeah. And uh, I remember the students who came from Arizona, uh, you know, when the snow would come down, they'd all run outside like, what is this magical <laughs> stuff? And, uh, it's pretty rare. It's pretty rare, but uh, yeah, I loved I loved living in uh, and going to school in Santa Fe. the The mountain air and the dryness and the vistas were great, and also it was such a, it's such a huge arts town. Yeah, um, it was great, especially when you were a broke college student on a Friday. All the galleries on Canyon Road would have gallery openings, and there'd be like free eats and booze. And That's so, great. That's <laughs> if you great. had nothing else to do, if you weren't in rehearsal, you'd go and sort of walk up Canyon Hill or Canyon Road rather, and then stumble back down to get back to the campus. So if, <laughs> if, if you were in rehearsal in Santa Fe, then it, does that mean that you were actually doing a, a course of study that was specifically for something artistic, dramatic, musical, whatever? Yeah. I went to the college of Santa Fe, um, uh, to get my BFA in acting. Oh, okay. All right. We worked at the, our theater was called the Greer Garson theater center. She was mm-hmm. our patron. And, um, we, uh, you know, we did four main stage shows a year, plus numerous, you know, student produced shows. I was acting the whole time I was there. And, uh, so yeah, it was a rare occasion when I wasn't in rehearsal. In rehearsal so, yeah. 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 But, Make, uh, makes sense. Yeah. So, so after, um, after, so you graduated with BFA from, uh, mm-hmm. from what was it, Santa yeah. Fe college? Uh, College of Santa Fe. College of Santa Fe, yeah. So was it right after that? I know that you went back east for a while. I think it was uh, D.C., if I remember correctly. Is that right? Well, actually, as soon as I graduated in 88, I stayed around for about two to three years in Santa Fe because I was – I immediately started working as an actor in between my carpentry jobs. That's how I got through school was I was a carpenter and a house painter. Ah. But I was doing – uh, theater in Santa Fe, but I was also doing television and movies in New Mexico and Arizona, Texas and Colorado. Uh, you know, uh, cowboy movies. I, oh, I had, cool. uh, yeah, I had really long hair then like I do now yeah. <laughs> and even longer actually. And so I was, you know, that was when there was really, you know, young guns, that whole kind of look mm. was really in vogue. And I was in a lot of major TV movies and foreign films that would come over and want the, you know, somebody who could ride a horse and look sort of like a, a cowboy, and so yeah, I and I know that there have been times in New Mexico's history when they've really um, kind of bumped up their their incentives for filmmakers mm-hmm. to come out mm-hmm. there. Yes, so I did that for a couple of years, and then I sort of played out the market. I realized I'd gotten a lot of experience, but I wasn't going to be able to have a real career as an actor. So I actually went in '90. I moved to New York with my first wife, Karen. Um, oh, it was New York. I thought it was DC. Yeah, no, I wanted to be a I wanted to be a classical theater actor. Ah, and, and so good place to do I, it. Yeah. I didn't, I wasn't really interested in doing film and TV anymore. 
at that time. And so I, I went to New York and uh, uh, started doing regional theater and then eventually became a company member uh, at the Pearl Theater, which was an off-Broadway classical repertory theater that had an acting company. So in my mid-20s, I was the resident male juvenile. So I played all the young prince roles, all oh, the young lover roles. Yeah, and we didn't we did we we didn't just do Shakespeare. We did Shaw and Sophocles and Mo, Moliere and Marivaux and Goldsmith and those things. And so I got a real I don't have an I don't have an MFA, but every so often people ask me, "Where'd you get your MFA?" And I say jokingly, half jokingly, I got it at the Pearl doing eight shows a week and rep, you know rehearsing the next show of the season during the daytime. Right. Did that for gosh almost five years. Damn, that's a lot of work. Yeah, it was it was pretty grueling, but <clears throat> it was a great training ground. Yeah, and I assume it was work that you loved. Oh yeah, no, I love classical theater. I liked it because it was so difficult, and I liked it because of the language, yeah. and that paid off years later. Because then in '96, by that time I was uh, my my Karen and I had separate. We had divorced, and I moved down to D.C. in '96. And 96 was when I sort of said, you know, I'm going to give theater a break. I want to get into back into TV and film and video. <clears throat> and then uh, at that same time, I got into audiobooks. Uh, that's when I, yeah, so so DC figures heavily because. So it, I, uh, I thought I remembered DC from back there somewhere. Yeah, yeah. So what's your, uh, what was your favorite Shakespeare role? Oh, Benedict must uh, no brainer. Benedict. Benedict. I, yeah, Benedict, and then I uh, in Much Ado About Nothing, and then uh, soon after that I played Baroon in Love's Labor's Lost, which is the sketch for that character as a younger man. Mm. And uh, I I did a lot of comedy in theater, believe it or not. Oh, there's and, a lot of comedy in Shakespeare. That's for there sure. There is. I was <laughs> well, you know, I wasn't. I didn't look hunky enough or rugged enough to be the bad guy, and so. As I got older in the theater, I began to play more like the comedic mm -hmm. love interest or the comedic leading man. Those yeah. were the kinds of parts I would do. Those are a lot of fun. Um, yeah, they are. And but although I, I've always wanted to play the villain because you just want to have something to you know something to. So if I had ever had a sure. chance, who, to play who doesn't want to play Iago? Oh, of right. course. Are you kidding? <laughs> Kill for that part. Yeah. But uh, and I'm sure he would have. Yes. <laughs> but, uh, well, that's cool. I, I'm not actually familiar with Love's Labor's Lost. Um, Love's Labor. Labor's, Love's Labor's Lost. Labor's Lost. Yeah. It was, yes. I was get too many S's in there. Yeah, I did. I, I did. I was fortunate enough to play Malvolio at some point. And, oh, that's um, a great show. That was a ball. Coming yeah. coming out all of a sudden in yellow stockings and garters and the mm -hmm. whole thing, mm -hmm. prancing around. That was great. Yeah, I think someday I'll get back into theater. But yeah. right now, I uh, have one more child to get through. You're, college you're, you're gonna wait till you can actually play Lear no, no. <laughs> not really, I want to do the comedic parts again oh you want to you want to focus on that yeah I don't well it just depends I just you know right now it's so far off my radar screen I haven't really given it too much thought I'm having too much fun you know narrating and teaching and and so on but sure <clears throat> um eventually I'll get back into it and and who knows uh it's uh as talking with a friend of mine, a producer, and he saw a picture of me with my hair and he said, keep growing it out. Well, you can get in like in a game, game of Thrones knockoff as, there a, you go. as some guy in that. I'm like, yes, that would be fun. <laughs> that's great. So you mentioned kids. I think if I remember correctly, you've got two, mm -hmm. are they both in, uh, in college at university or whatever at this point? Uh, Noah, who's 27 is my oh, stepson. I didn't realize. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. 
he's 27 and he lives in uh, the Annapolis area. He's got a, a full-time job and he goes to, to night school right now. And so he's going to, I think it's university of Maryland yeah. uh, on the, the, the satellite program Very cool. and he's getting a business degree. And then Lily is 17. So that's what but, I was thinking was that both your kids were about that age, but yeah, didn't realize yeah. there was a big split there. Yeah. Lily lives with her mom, Shannon, uh, out in Delaware. And, um, uh, she's, 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 it's funny. Both of our kids, they really, they both told us at one time or another, like, we don't want to be actors. You guys don't make enough money. <laughs> so, <laughs> Wise kids. Yeah. Smart kids. So they, they're both, uh, have a real business entrepreneurial bent, which I think is fantastic. Sure. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, Lily's very much like me in the sense that she's, she's very focused and driven on wanting to become something. Just, she just hasn't figured out what that is yet. So, uh, mm-hmm. um, plenty but, of time uh, when you're 17. Yeah. You know, she's got a, she's got a day job. She's got school. She has a boyfriend. She has a car. She's very happy right now. And, uh, Noah's got his, you know, he's got his housemates and his dog and his girlfriend and, and, uh, that's fine with me. I, 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 I can wait a nice long time before I become a grandfather. So <laughs> you're still plenty young for that. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Well, that's cool. All right. So I want to hear some narration. So, um, okay. so tell me what you got for me. In, well, I in, introduce I, this clip here. Sure. This clip is, um, a piece from my favorite book. People ask me, what is your favorite book? And I, unfortunately I did not get to record this book. And this is from Moby Dick. Um, I, discovered this book when I was in college. I tried to read it in high school, but I couldn't understand it. And then uh, after college, I began to read it, and it's my favorite book. I have it on my iPad. And for years, I used to carry a physical copy of it with me wherever I went. So if I was stuck in an airport with nothing to do, I would just open it up somewhere and read another chapter. Um, it's wow. a beautiful That is a oh, favorite. It's, yes, it's a huge favorite of mine. And um, uh Seconded only by Infinite Jest by David Foster Wallace, which I did record. So I have that one also on my iPad. So sometimes I'll bounce back and forth. But Moby Dick is just a lovely book. Very and cool. uh, this, yeah, this, this little, it's a short piece. It's, um, the piece is known uh, as The Whiteness of the Whale. And it's a meditation on the color white. Um, and uh, it start. what's really nice about the piece is it, is Melville starts with the smallest objects that are white, like marbles and japonicas and pearls. And then he ends with the largest ideas that are white, which are God up in the clouds, you know, with the white hair and the flowing beard and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. But then at the very end, it has this wonderful turn uh, and it gets a sort of Edgar Allan Poe-ish at the very end. So nice. it's, it's, yeah, it's one of my favorite pieces. It's also something I assign my students. So guess what you're going to be doing eventually. <laughs> and, um, it's a, it's a very challenging piece. It's, it, it's deceptive how difficult it could be. All right. Well, let's but take, let's, let's take a listen. Sure. All right. Here we go. Moby Dick by Herman Melville. The Whiteness of the Whale. Though in many natural objects, whiteness refiningly enhances beauty, as if imparting some special virtue of its own as in marbles, japonicas, and pearls. And though various nations have in some way recognized a certain royal preeminence in this hue, 
even the barbaric grand old kings of Pegu placing the title Lord of the White Elephants above all their other magniloquent descriptions of dominion, and the modern kings of Siam unfurling the same snow-white quadruped in the royal standard, and the Hanoverian flag bearing the one figure of a snow-white charger, and the great Austrian empire, Caesarian, heir to overloading Rome, having for the imperial color the same imperial hue. And though this preeminence in it applies to the human race itself, giving the white man ideal mastership over every dusky tribe, and though besides all this, whiteness has been even made significant of gladness, for among the Romans a white stone marked a joyful day, and though in other mortal sympathies and symbolizings this same hue has made the emblem of many touching noble things, the innocence of brides, the benignity of age, though among the red men of America the giving of the white belt of wampum was the deepest pledge of honor. Though in many climes, whiteness typifies the majesty of justice in the ermine of the judge, and contributes to the daily state of kings and queens drawn by milk-white steeds, and though even in the higher mysteries of the august religions it has been made the symbol of the divine spotlessness and power by the Persian fire-worshippers, the white forked flame being held the holiest on the altar, and in the Greek mythologies, great Jove himself made incarnate in a snow-white bull. And though to the noble Iroquois the midwinter sacrifice of the sacred white dog was by far the holiest festival of their theology, that spotless, faithful creature being held the purest envoy they could send to the great spirit with the annual tidings of their own fidelity. And though directly from the Latin word for white, all Christian priests derive the name of one part of their sacred vesture, the alba tunic, worn beneath the hassock, and though among the holy pomps of the Romish faith, white is specially employed in the celebration of the Passion of our Lord. Though in the vision of St. John, white robes are given to the redeemed, and the four and twenty elders stand clothed and white before the great white throne, and the holy one that sitteth there white like wool. Yet... For all these accumulated associations, with whatever is sweet and honorable and sublime, there yet lurks an elusive something in the innermost idea of this hue, which strikes more of panic to the soul than that redness which affrights in blood. All right. Very nice. Mm-hmm. Very Thank nice. you. So if somebody was going to be going into that, uh, you know, reading the text and then saying, okay, I'm going to narrate this, yeah. what would be maybe two or three main points that you would tell that person, just asking for a friend? <laughs> <laughs> for this piece in particular, you mean? Yeah. Okay. Well, this piece is, um, when you look at it on the page, it's actually one sentence. Oh my okay? gosh. It's one sentence. And so, uh, the concept of a paragraph in writing is that a paragraph is a meditation on a single idea, okay? Mm-hmm. A well-written paragraph. And so, um, but sometimes you have, the, the, a writer will do the inverse of that and squish a whole bunch of things, ideas together in one long passage. Faulkner is notorious for this. David Foster Wallace is too, so is James Agee, and Herman Melville. So in this particular passage, the key to doing this is that you have to sort of make little tiny mini paragraphs through it. So uh, you, you have you know, to put talk, in your own punctuation. 
Yes. Well, you you break it up because at first he talks about little tiny things, and then he moves on to talking about nations. Excuse me. Then he talks about animals, and then he you know so he so you're like oh we're talking about this idea now. So if we're going to talk about a new idea, you have to make a new acting choice. Mm-hmm. It's that it's the concept that I've you and I've discussed about what I call paragraph colors. Yeah. Which is you know it's a it's an idea I stole from learning how to do Shakespeare, which is in Shakespeare, everything you need to know about how to perform a passage or a scene is actually in the text itself. If you just learn how to read it properly. And so what I teach my students is inside of a paragraph, if the author has decided to tell you how they feel about the topic they're discussing, they have to use some kind of descriptive language. And so if you look for that descriptive language, that informs how the paragraph should sound. So if the if the in this if in a particular paragraph, if the author is uh, using sarcastic language, then you need to deliver that paragraph in a fairly sarcastic bent. Mm-hmm. Or if they're being angry, then you need to be angry. It's sort of acting 101. But you'd be shocked. I'm I'm always shocked when I listen to nonfiction, and the narrator is just sort of motoring through all this material, ignoring the the obvious emotional content behind the discussion that the author is putting into the the language. Mm-hmm. And so and so with this particular piece of Moby Dick, you have to break it up into little tiny mini paragraphs and then decide, well, how does he feel about that that little chunk? And then try your best to manifest that into the performance. Wow. For your friend. For your friend. That's great. Yes, <laughs> yes. I will pass that information along, believe me. <laughs> So, uh, so that's great. That's great. Well, thanks yeah. for that. Um, you're welcome. so online, I know that you, um, you're pretty open about your political views and, and things like that. Uh, I don't, I don't want to go down a rabbit hole and say, so what are your political views, Sean? But <laughs> I, I am very curious. I know that you are, um, you're fairly outspoken well, on your views. Yeah, I'm a, I'm sort of a tree hugging, dub smoking, solar powered, uh, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren loving liberal. So, so that's me. That's but a here's great, the, here's that's the a great difference. way to put that. I would not have yeah. thought to put it that way, but I love it. Yeah. But here's the thing. And I tell my students this. And when, if you find me on Facebook, if you find Sean Pratt on Facebook, my personal page, I talk about anything. Mm-hmm. Okay. I have very strong views about politics and religion and social, social issues and so on. That's one thing. But Sean Pratt presents where I talk about my work as a narrator and as a coach. I never ever discuss personal issues. There's a bright red line between the two. And that's because when people hire me to say work for them as a narrator or as a coach, that should not be part of the discussion. Mm -hmm. You know, when I have, I have students who are very conservative in their political bent, that's fine. We never discuss politics in our session and that's, and it shouldn't be, it's not germane to the conversation. Right. That's, that's not the, not the part you're playing. That's not the part I'm playing. I'm playing a coach and I'm, you know, they've hired me to make them the best nonfiction narrator they can possibly be. And that's what I want to do for them. And when, um, you know, there's a, in the world of when I'm narrating, um, I'm going to be doing this workshop a couple of times next year. I used to do it all the time. Uh, before I was a narration coach, I used to do classes on the East coast about for acting schools about the business of show business. So I mm-hmm. do classes about, you know, resumes and auditions and agents and so on. And I had a special uh, class. It's called work, when to take it, when to turn it down and how to know the difference. 
And so it's based around these three questions. Anytime I'm offered a gig, I ask myself three questions. I say, oh, this, this is great. This is, this is actually the specific reason that I brought up politics was because right. I'm, I'm really interested to hear, yes. you know, you have very strong views, which I've seen, but I'm really curious as to how that uh, enters into your decision-making process. If oh, yeah. you're, I mean, like if somebody says, I want you to, uh, you know, the way you described yourself, quite liberal, if somebody offers you a book about, uh, that's very, uh, praiseworthy about the, the Trump administration, what would right. you do? So this is great. You actually have kind of a, a sequence, a yeah, a system yeah. to determine. So, so what I would do is when I'm offered a, a project in this, not only a book, but any kind of project. So you ask yourself three questions. The first question is, um, what will this do for my career? Will it help it or hurt it? The second question is, will I make any money on the project? And then the third question is, will I have any fun? Um, let me explain the fun part. Um, ultimately, as a performer, whether or not you're in tune or excited about the project can affect your ultimate performance, mm -hmm. right? And I remember years ago, I was in a play in Santa Fe where everything that could go wrong in the rehearsal process did go wrong. It was a horrendous experience. Somebody must and have said when, Macbeth in the theater. Oh no, it was hard. <laughs> yeah, I wish. I wish it was that simple. And it was it was a terrible experience. And when I had my friends and colleagues come see me in the play after the play, we were they were tearing it apart over drinks and I kept defending what happened. Like, oh I know, I know that guy's bad, but he was drunk all the time during rehearsal or this person's really pain in the neck to work with. And one of my acting teachers who saw the show said, Sean, I understand all that's true. I've been an actor my entire life. I totally understand. But all I know as an audience member is I just pay 20 bucks to watch you suck in a bad play. <laughs> and so what that taught me was that, you know, if you don't, if you're not on board with the show, then don't take it. If you, if there's what I call the unfun o meter, you know, so the, what the, the the class is basically you take those three questions and you drill down and you realize that the answer to those questions is more complex. Like just take the thing about career. Mm -hmm. There've been times when I've been offered a book that I wasn't really excited about doing, but the publisher came to me and said, the narrator we picked for this is sick and we got to have this done in a week. Could you please do it for us? And it might, you know, sometimes it's like, yeah, no problem. But sometimes it's a book like, yeah. But now I have to look at the larger picture on this one question. Sure, yeah. Do I tell, do I tell X pub, audiobook publisher that I won't do it and now put them they're really scrambling or do, am I a team player for this one thing and then help solidify my long-term relationship with that? Right. You see. So there's that that question, will it, you know, cuz every job you do there there's no such thing as a neutral job. You are, it either helps your career or it hurts it. Mm -hmm. And so you have to decide, well, what does hurting my career mean? Does that mean one book hurts me because I did the topic or does it help me because I, I was a team player on that or whatever. Right. And then when it comes to money, that's about just learning to basically what I'm doing in the classes, I'm teaching my students how to negotiate a contract. Mm -hmm. Right. So the money issue is also a thing like when you're first starting out, like in audiobooks, you need to you just get some, you know, yeah, you want to projects that are fairly decent, but you need to run up some numbers of the numbers of books you've actually done. So whether or not it's royalty share or stipend or PFH, you know, that's uh, when you're first starting out, that's as far as the money is concerned, that's almost beside the point. Right. You know, but that the fun thing is a different issue. You learn, this is, this is an on the job thing. So getting back to your original statement, like 
I don't like the Trump administration. It would not be fun. Mm-hmm. But the I, so it would be unfun to do. Now, what I try to say is when you're negotiating the ideas in the end, you can say yes. If you can say yes to all three questions, take the job. Right, done but deal. If you can say, right. If you can say yes to only two, then if you decide to do the job, then you know you, you go into it with hopefully some, you know, your eyes open as to what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. But if you can only say yes to one question, never, ever take the job. That's great. I'll give you an, that is, yeah, that, you, that is a great template to, uh, yeah. to keep in mind. I've actually had one of those recently. And so now I'm going to apply those questions. Fortunately, I haven't answered yet, so I can actually look <laughs> at it a little more critically. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I'll give you a, a different context, but the same construct. <clears throat> a, a, a colleague of mine, he's a, a commercial model. And he got offered a lot of money by a big-time agency to do a, uh, an ad campaign. Uh, but he was going to be the face of this. Uh, basically, it was like, is there a pedophile in your life? Ooh. Call 1-800-whatever. He Oof. was going to be the face of that. Wow. Yes, I kid you not. That's a like, rough one. Not no, but hell no. Yeah. You know, because, because the only thing going for it was the amount of money they offered him. Mm-hmm. And so he said, I'm, pa- I'm passing. Kind of thing that unless you can retire on that amount of money, you might yes. not want to do it. <laughs> exactly. So, so you answer, you know, so you ask those questions. And here's the other thing that I tell, I talk about in the class, is that when I'm in the negotiating stage of a project, and most of the time with most of my clients now in audiobooks, it's a no-brainer. It's very instantaneous. And if I turn down a project nine times out of ten, it's because I'm overbooked, mm-hmm. right? But the idea is when you're negotiating the project, I call that I'm in the land of me. It's all about Sean. What does Sean need to make this project work? Mm-hmm. Right? And that doesn't matter if it's a play or a movie or an audiobook. It's about me, me, me. I don't care about anybody else. And then we reach that moment of yes, no, where the, the client says, this is our best offer. And then you make a decision. You go back to those three questions. So the idea is that if I can say yes to it, if I feel confident and I say yes, then I I enter the land of we, then I become a team player. Mm-hmm. It's all about how do we make this project the best possible. Right. And but even, even and t- if you know it's not going to be fun or even if you know it's not going to net that much money, you are invested enough to say, I'm doing the best I can because this is a team effort now. Right. And the problem for a lot of performers is they don't get all the, there's, it, it's a little more complex. I mean, I obviously I don't want to give you the whole thing here. This is called a tease in show business. Once you <laughs> find out the class, but what happens for some sometimes, and this I've been a victim of this myself, is that you didn't quite get all the things you wanted in the negotiation, and you still say yes. And what happens is you have one foot back in the land of me, mm-hmm. and one foot in we, yeah. the land of we, and so you're stuck. And that causes all this friction inside. You're pissed off that you didn't get enough money or you're upset about the how it's going to work on your career. But you've said yes now. And now you're part of the project. Mm-hmm. And that's when things can go sideways on you. So you have to be really careful. So I could probably, you know, of the 950 audiobooks I've done, uh, I could probably count on my hands the number of times I've turned down a project for personal reasons. Mm-hmm. The majority of the time, it's because I'm just simply overbooked. Right. You know, but also, and I would tell your listeners, one way to help mitigate that problem is to be clear about what you will or won't do with a, a casting director or a publisher. Mm-hmm. You know, I w- there are certain kinds of material I'm just, I'm not right for, nor am I interested in. And I tell them, mm-hmm. 
you know, it's like it's like a lot of my students do erotica. Mm-hmm. And so they say, okay, I'll do this kind of erotica, but not that kind of erotica. And they make it very clear to the people who would approach them what they're interested in. And that sort of that sort of uh, uh, gets around that issue. Yeah, no, it makes sense is that if you communicate effectively to begin with, then it's never going to be a a problem later on. Right. That's that's right. Yeah. Well, that's great. I I love the fact that you've got it. um, You've got this template of what to look for. So I'll definitely be using that. So at some point you went from being um, an audiobook narrator to mm-hmm. a primarily nonfiction audiobook narrator. Yes. So how did that happen? Well, um, when I first started, it was mainly fiction, I think, for most narrators. Back in the day, this is 1996, 97, 98, in there. Books on tape. Books on tape and Blackstone Audio were my first two clients. And I, I realized very quickly that I needed to work as much as possible to learn how to be a narrator. So I went back to them and I said, I will do anything that nobody else wants. I don't care what it is. I really don't care. Just give it to me. Mm-hmm. And they had plenty of B and C list material. And also I had a, I had a company in Albuquerque that I recorded for, for about five, five years, I guess, called Americana Publishing. And it was all fiction too. It was like sci-fi and Westerns. And they were really fun. But after several years of doing nothing but fiction, I was, you know, as you know, as a narrator, it's sort of, oh, the butler did it again. Okay, <laughs> here we go. Oh, bad Bart's in town. I guess Lucky Luke is going to take him out. Okay. <laughs> and so then it becomes about how many sort of funny voices can you come up with? Right. A little formulaic. Right? Formulaic. And, and and granted, that's why people read and or listen to them because there is a formula and they sure, like that. Yeah, and they like it. Yeah. Right. It's like, you know, it's like, it's like, it's like reading a Dan Brown novel. Mm-hmm. You know, what's his face? The, the, our hero, whose name I can't think of right now, the, the in his books always teams oh, up with some either. sexy, fiery, independent woman. And they solve the, they save the day kind of a thing. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's part of the formula of the, his books. And that's great. I love to, I, you know, I enjoy them immensely and the movies are great. Um, but as a performer, I was doing, you know, I was, I went full time pretty soon after I started, I was doing, you know, four to seven books a month, mm. depending on the, well, the stuff for Americano, they were all exactly six hours long because they sold them on cassette. Uh, that dinosaur. They, they, they planned it out. Yes. They were edited down to six hours and they sold them at like truck stops right. around the country, you know? Yeah. If it's and over so, six hours, we're not going to be able to fit it on the number of cassettes that are going to fit into that it. package. Now we got more yep. marketing costs and we got more manufacturing got costs. Yeah. <laughs> so, so what happened was, is that I was doing at least four a month for them. And then on top of that, I was doing stuff for Blackstone and BOT and, uh, Redwood audio and some other people. But so you, so I was nagging, nagging, nagging about, I need more material. And then, uh, books on tape, this is now, this is back in the day. So for your listeners who are just getting into this, back in the day, we recorded on VHF's videotape oh. and a thing called an ADAT system because a VHS videotape would hold eight lines of track. It's basically four cassettes. Okay? Oh, I see. It would hold more. Yeah. Okay? So, and in the old days, they would mail you this box and then it would be the VHS tapes and the book. And some cassettes. So you would record the book on the VHS. You would dub off a set of cassettes with it. 
and then you would mail the whole thing back to the company and they would use those cassettes to make the dubs that you listen to and they would keep the VHS as the archival version. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I'd been nagging books on tape for a couple of months about, I need more material. Give me more. Give me more. I've got a big, you know, chunk of time available. Give me some stuff. And then this box came, this big box. And Sigrid was the woman's name who was the casting director at that time at Books on Tape. She let me in a little note. She said, this will keep you from bothering me for a while. (laughs) It was a a five-volume history of the state of California. Oh, my gosh. Each book clocked in at about 30 hours. It was 150 hours. Wow. And um, the longest single project I've ever worked on. And thank God they were well-written. It was written by the state librarian. Dr. Kevin Starr was his name. Very nice man. And it took me, you know, basically a year on and off to record this thing. Wow. And, and, you know, I, I would shudder to go back and listen to it. Because it's like, you know, it, it, I was woefully unprepared for that kind of commitment in nonfiction. Sure. But on the other hand, I'm sure that's um, kind of a watershed thing if, if mm-hmm. that leads you into nonfiction. Well, yeah, because I, I I got through it. And by the time I finished it, I was like, you know what? This was really difficult. And that's the reason I went into classical theater. It was really difficult. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know what? I like this. I want more of it. And so I began to nag uh, my the producers, publishers I was working with, give me some nonfiction. And they slowly began to send me more and more. And then soon after that, like around 2000, early 2000s, I began to narrate for Christian Audio and then for Gildan Media. And that's all, you know, a lot of stuff was coming through, especially Gildan, because it was all nonfiction, business stuff, self-help, psychology, sociology. Mm-hmm. And I really loved it because that's the thing. Whereas if you do the same mystery over and over again, it gets a bit repetitive, for me at least. Mm-hmm. What I liked about nonfiction was I was always learning something. I tell people I'm really good at a cocktail party because I know a little bit about everything, it seems. <laughs> After 950 books, I can imagine. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and at least until the third or fourth scotch arrives, then I'm like, oh, how about the weather? You know, um, you well, know but yeah, I, well, I joke with people like – Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, well, that's great. So it so it was clearly not just you kind of fell into it. It's that you got one thing and it kind of sparked your interest, and yeah. so you kind of drove yourself in that direction. Yes. Yeah. And then I realized that you know nonfiction constitutes about a quarter of the industry, and I thought, and when I listened to, I listened, started listening to a lot of nonfiction, and I wasn't really. What I heard did not impress me, nor, nor frankly, was my own early nonfiction narration impressing me. And I'm like, you know what? There's got to be a better way to do this. And so the challenge of getting really good at doing nonfiction was what drove me to do more of it. I, it, it it's, it's like, look, I'm, I've been a performer since I was 10. Why can't I master this? You know, So get my big boy pants on and let's go do it. So then you did, and, you mastered it, you got good at it, and then you became a coach. Yeah, I did. How long did that I take? Did. Well, since 1996, I was doing coaching about the business to show business, and I was also doing private coaching about with actors about like, it's, you know, like career coaching. And then in the early, 
mid 2000s, I started doing audiobook workshops. They were these day long affairs where I'd spend like three hours with the group doing some basic technique and we'd have a lunch break and then we'd come back and I'd have somebody else come in and they'd do a class on like how to get in the industry or how to build a booth or whatever. Mm-hmm. And that was fun. And immediately after I started that, people began to ask me, do you coach? And initially I said, no, I don't. I had too many balls in the earth, you know, raising kids and life and yeah. work. I just couldn't. I could. And also the, 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 how do I, coach i couldn't quite figure out how to make that workable given my schedule Mm -hmm. so i just said no and then a couple of things happened in the mid-2000s or you know like around 2010 i guess along came skype ah right and so now i could see the student and talk with them um i've been doing lots of workshops and now i was a little tired of doing them it takes a lot of energy to organize a workshop someplace. And I thought, well, if I could sit at home in my pajamas and coach somebody one-on-one, that's cool. And so – but then I had to – I narrated enough books about uh, coaching, and I had some big questions to ask myself. The first one was, what kind of coach do I want to be? Because there's, there's basically two kinds of coaching. There's what they call tactical coaching and strategic coaching oh, regardless yeah, you, I, you mentioned this yeah. i think recently on the um it was uh the vo meter paul stefano yeah. yeah and sean daly they had a uh, an audiobook yeah. roundtable and i remember you mentioning this and this is i'm, I'm glad you're bringing it up because um because i'm very interested in the differences well so and this is this is regardless of what you're teaching if you you know if you're a, a real estate agent or a carpenter or whatever and you're looking for coaching there's two kinds of coaching there's tactical and strategic. So tactical in our business and voiceover or audiobooks, a tactical coach there's you, you know, you you get with them and you work with them and they give you instant feedback. You know, somebody like when I think of that, I think of people like PJ Oakland and mm-hmm. Johnny Heller, Paul Rubin, Carol Monda. And so you're working one on one. And that kind of coaching is really valuable when you're doing things like uh, creating your demos, working on a specific audition for a book, uh, learning about dialogue, which is really an acting class, and or like with PJ or or with Joel Frumkin, uh, learning about accents, mm-hmm. right? So you need that instant feedback, boom, 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 and that's what a tactical coach. That's where their value is, and what you're paying for, of course, is their years of performing and directing and teaching. That's mm-hmm. what you're paying for in that hour session, right? A strategic coach, which is what I do, is sort of like signing up for um, a college class where you show up for class and the teacher gives an interactive lecture and talks with you about what you're doing, assigns homework, and then critiques the homework from the last session. And then out of that, as you know, being my student, you understand. So, so you, the homework is done outside of class. Right, right. And, and, but there's also a curriculum. That's, mm-hmm. the key, that's the key difference is there's a progression with what you're learning, mm-hmm. right? And so, so I had to ask myself, what kind of coach do I want to be? And given that I felt that nonfiction – well, that's the other thing too. I looked around and I said, everybody I saw out there who was coaching, they all talked about and focused on fiction. 
And it was like nonfiction was sort of the ugly redheaded stepchild of audio. <laughs> and since right? you're redheaded, I won't go the I know. other direction. See, I, had but... <laughs> to, I had to pick up the banner for gingers, you know. And so, so they the um, uh, I sip my beer here. No, that's this fine. So I, nice. I've been this sipping all so along. Much more this is yeah. so much more culture than any other podcast I've done. Um, so the um, um, I looked around and I said, you know, there's all these fiction coaches. And one of the first things they teach you in business is don't try to be better than the other guy. Try to be different. Because then if you try to be better than somebody, that means you've put them on this ladder of success. And that means you've also put them ahead of you on that ladder. Mm-hmm. So you're always going to be chasing them on a yardstick that's that's ephemeral. Like how do you measure another coach's or another performer's success? But if you create your own ladder and, you know, so for me, it was like, I'm going to just focus on nonfiction. That's how I'm going to, that's the shingle I'm going to throw out. Mm -hmm. And so there was nobody else like that, that said, I only do nonfiction. I I love that advice in general. Um, and, and I hear that sometimes like even, um, it makes me think of Bob Bergen when I've seen him comment in VO forums that are not geared towards audiobooks but other things. And he says, you know, nobody, no agent out there, no client out there needs another needs another voice. They no. need something new. They need something yes. different. You need to be you. You need to have yeah. something completely unique and that's what they're going to like. So, uh, so I love that advice. Don't, don't look for, don't, don't try to be, um, better, try to be different. Well, you know, the thing is, is that, uh, you know, when I was a theater actor in New York, there was a story that I talk about in my book to be or want to be. That's my plug for my book right there. Um, <laughs> there's a story I tell about, I was going in for an audition for a Shakespeare play, summer stock show. And uh, they were reading for Demetrius. So I guess that's uh, Midsummer Night's Dream. Mm. And so I walk into this audition and I open the door and I'm not kidding you. In that room, there was like 30 other tall redheads all reading for Demetrius. And that was the moment you realized that when your mom told you you were special, she was <laughs> lying to you. Lying. And so oh, – That's great. Yeah. So, so, but, but then you go, okay, so how am I different? I mean, the perfect example in business is Starbucks, you know, Starbucks doesn't sell coffee. That's part of what they sell. They sell something unique, a place to go. Yeah. It's like, you know, it's, it's, that's why they've been successful. It's a unique kind of thing. All right. Yeah. And so when I looked around as a coach, I said, I want to, I want to do nonfiction only, and I wanted to develop a curriculum and be a strategic coach which is different from most of the coaches, almost all the coaches I saw. And so I've spent several years when I first started coaching, crafting that curriculum and those ideas. And, you know, it took several years of where I had to learn how to be a one-on-one coach. And so that's, and, and, and also, frankly, um, it came, the notion of becoming a coach came at my uh, point in my career. I, was, I guess I was about 15 years into being a narrator and I was just starting to get a little bored with it all. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I, and I narrate six days a week. I have a ton of work. And so when I decided I wanted to be a coach, then you have this wonderful moment where you learn to 
there's a paradigm shift where you start to look back on yourself at what you're doing and go, oh, okay, so now I have to take this nebulous idea, I have to create a construct around it, I give it a name, I have to come up with an exercise to teach it, I have to be able to ex explain that to a student and then respond to what they do. And to me, the level of intellectual stimulation that provided was immense. I'll bet. Cause I, I mean, I can imagine that because getting good at something over the course of 15 years, there are certain things that I'm sure that you were just doing. Yeah. And it's intuitive. Exactly. It intuitive. Exactly. And so actually having to pick it apart and analyze what you've been doing that has been successful, I'm yes. sure that was challenging and also really rewarding. Oh yeah, absolutely. And, and so you know, uh, you know, you and I've been working together, what, six, nine months or so. Something like that. Yeah. And, yeah. But you, you're not around for the, when I first started, you know, it was, I was just, you know, grasping at straws, trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And I spent a lot of time, you know, going, why am I doing this here? Oh, that's why. Oh, okay. So how do I, you know, right. and I'd come up with a lesson for that one idea and, and that was, and what it did was it reinvigorated my own interest in narration. Oh, great. You know? So kind of yeah. an unexpected consequence. Oh yeah. It was, it was, you know, I, here's the thing. I, this notion about following your passion in your life, I think is sort of, uh, not good advice. Because you can be passionate, I could be passionate about singing opera, but be a terrible opera singer. Mm -hmm. I think you should be, I think you should bring your passion along with you as you journey. What you're really looking for is opportunity. You know, as, an, as a, so I, I'm a performer. That's what I do. I've always been an actor since I was a child. And so it's always been about, oh, there's a new opportunity over here. Mm -hmm. Let me try that out for a while. And then I bring my passion for excellence. That's really what I do. I bring my passion for excellence. I know I'll never be perfect, but if I pursue excellence in whatever I do, then I get rewards out of that. In the action of doing, I learn and I get better at it. Sure. And so, so the um, uh, the the idea that I could I could take this thing that I've been doing intuitively for so so long. And then re -art and articulate it back to somebody else. And then, of course, there's there's also the the higher thing about giving back to the industry, mm -hmm. giving back to people. Yeah, you know, um, uh, I know Kevin Spacey's sort of out of favor at the moment, but he has a great quote about if you make it to the top of the you know top of success, you're obligated to send the elevator back down mm. and help people back up. Yeah, you know, and that's true. That's really true. You. You know, um, yeah, that's, I gotta say, that's one thing that I love about the VO industry in general and oh, audi sure. audiobooks in particular is, um, the willingness that I have seen of people who, I mean, even just for this podcast of people who are, you know, way up the ladder, way higher than I am right now, who are just willing to give back. And I tell them, you know, I'd love to talk to you on, on my new podcast because I'm, I'm talking to all these people in the industry. And sure. they're all, that'd be great. Yeah, that'd be great. I'd love to. And people who are willing to just give of their time to uh, help others. It's its really um, kind of amazing sometimes when I think about it in this industry. Yeah, it is. It's its really, it's, it's, um, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, having been an actor in New York and LA and, you know, the acting world is so 
unfortunately so vicious and competitive, yeah. which is it's sad. What I found surprising in in a good way is how generous people are. But that mm-hmm. being said, um, you know, I was I, I was recently a few weeks ago at Johnny Heller's retreat mm-hmm. in Rhode Island, and New I was England, doing right? yeah. yes, New England, yeah. I was doing a, a thing on branding with uh, Stephen J. Cohen. Mm, yeah. he's, a, he's a lovely guy, yeah. and uh, we were talking about branding and marketing with this group of people, and um. It got me to thinking about branding and how people the, – the, the truth about branding is it, a lot of people in that, that room who were asking us questions, they couldn't quite wrap their head around what is branding. And the easiest way to think about branding, I would tell your listeners, is that branding is what people say about you and the you here is the company or the product or service. What, what, is, what do they say about you when you are not in the room? Hmm. Interesting. That is branding. I like because, that. Yeah, because ultimately, like, let's, let's go back to Starbucks. You know, Starbucks, now they get feedback. They they constantly pursue feedback about what people like and don't like, and then they can tweak that. But ultimately, at the end of the day, when people, you know, if you and I and some five other people were in the room, we talked about Starbucks, what we say about them ultimately is their brand. Mm-hmm. Right. Their reputation. Yeah. Because, because yeah, I I was thinking reputation because you can do everything that you want in marketing. And if people go away saying, oh, well, I didn't really like this or that. I mean, what they say about you when you're not in the room. Yeah. I I, I like that. And then to, to build on that, I've seen and experienced people who don't understand that, um, who behave badly on social media. Mm, yeah, I you think know, we've all who, seen a little bit of that. <laughs> right. You know, I had some experiences like that recently, and I was just like, you know, the VO world is very small. Mm-hmm. And if your brand is being an irascible, combative jerk, that's your brand. And when people begin to talk about what you do, you know, if that's the if that's the the short the thumbnail sketch of Oh yes, you know Gus Johnson, that guy, whatever, or that woman, or whatever. Mm-hmm. If that becomes your brand, that's really hard to shake. Yeah, and you know, I see. The problem is, is that people within social media, you know, when you're on a news page like CNN or Fox News or whatever, and you're commenting on something, and you might get into a back and forth with somebody about a certain issue on that kind of page. Yeah, if you want to be a jerk, okay, fine, be a jerk, or on Twitter or whatever. But when you're within the forum of your colleagues and your peers, and you're misbehaving, you're saying rude things, that's going to stick. Sure. You know, I've had a couple of students, it, and it's upsetting. You know, I, I think of my students as my kids. <laughs> I really do. I'm very Thanks, paternal Dad. about that. Yeah, I know. You can't borrow the car, so don't, don't ask. And, um, but I think of my students as my kids. And when I, you know, when, when somebody approaches me about working with them, I have them fill out a questionnaire like you did. And then I spend time, I spend, you know, 30 minutes, an hour chatting with them before we ever start. I want to get a feel for the person mm-hmm. because every so often I'll have somebody come along and like, mm, I don't think I want to work with this person. Um, and I learned that by having students early on that I took on that then behaved in a way that was like antithetical to being a smart business person. Mm-hmm. 
you know, in a social media setting. Sure, yeah. And I'm like, that's not going to fly. And they basically, you know, uh, sabotaged th their own career. Right. And so you have to be careful about those things, which is why getting back to an earlier thing we talked about, you know, Sean Pratt talks about anything he wants to, but Sean Pratt presents only talks about the industry. It's all about the business. And that's my yeah. decision. Other people are different. Mm -hmm. They can, you know, they can decide how they want to approach stuff. But for me, that's a very bright red line. Yeah. And no, I would sense. say, yeah, you just have to, you know, you, once again, branding is about your reputation. It's about what the, what the customer or a colleague says about you when you're not in the room. That ultimately is your brand. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. So, um, so getting back to your students, not just me, hopefully, I'm, <laughs> ho hopefully I'm not going to enter into your answer here, but, um, <laughs> do you have any, uh, horror stories from, from coaching? I mean, have you ever worked with someone where after two or three or five sessions, you just said, you know what? I think you might want to consider a different line of work. Uh, you know, no, that for that specific scenario, no, that's good because that's why I had them fill out the questionnaire. I look at their stuff. Because sometimes people approach me who want to get into audiobooks, and I realize what they really want to do is fiction. Mm. I'm like, I'm not the right person for you. And then I suggest three or four or five other coaches, somebody like Johnny Heller or Carol Mondo or Paul. Oh, that's Hayden. great. So you, so you actually have run into the situation where somebody is looking for a coach, and you right. actually refer them to somebody else because you oh, look yeah. at the situation and you say, yeah, I don't think this is the right one. No, because I do I, – you know, nonfiction is a different beast. Mm -hmm. And so if they want to tell stories and do, you know, funny voices and stuff, I'm like, I'm not the right person for you. Mm -hmm. I mean, yes, yes, I could do that, but that's not what I specialize in. That doesn't make, you know, I do the, what I do because it makes me different. And so I say, you need to go talk to these people and I give them their email addresses and so on. That's great. So there's that. And then that's why I also have the interview before I meet with somebody, because every so often I'll meet with someone. And I'll get a feel from their the interaction that this person is going to be combative or resistant to what I do. And there's a reason why <laughs> I've acquired the moniker of the ginger Yoda. And um, <laughs> the Yoda part's very, you know, it's very flattering. Like I have a lot of knowledge, but there's also something about the Yoda character that I also adhere to, which is Yoda's like, you know, he's, he, there are certain things about the character of Yoda. It's like, no, we're going to do it my way. Mm -hmm. That's the way it's going to be done. If you're going to work with me, this is the way it's done. Mm -hmm. And so when I get that feel that a person's going to be combative, I'm like, I'm not, I'm going to save both of us a bunch of heartache. Um, and then the last thing is, is that I've learned also when I take a student on is not to judge them. In other words, as long as they work hard and turn their homework in on time and they show up and are attentive, they're going to get better. Mm -hmm. And who am I to say, you know, I've had students, okay, I'll give you an example. I had a student who had a very thick Southern accent. Now I could say, oh, he's not going to do very well because he can't get out of that accent. But you know what? He worked really hard. He was really smart and driven. And he works all the time because he's focused on material that takes place geographically mm. in the South. Great. And he works all the time. So the thing that it taught me was that was, that was me being, you know, uh, I want to say shallow, but just having judgmental. Mm -hmm. And I've, I let that go a long time ago. 
is that, you know what? You, there's a niche for you. There's so much audiobook work out there. You can work within your specific. It's like uh, that uh, the film actress, Holly Hunter. Holly Hunter always sounds like Holly Hunter. Yep. You know, but she worked a ton. Mm, oh, and yeah. Because, God, I know, love Holly Hunter. Right. Yeah. And But that's okay because that's what she was, you know. Right. And so there's. And within, you know, there's so much work in audiobooks that even if you feel like, well, I've got this Boston accent and I'm an older guy, trust me, there's stuff out there for you. Mm-hmm. No. So, no, actually, I have never had that conversation with somebody. That's and the good. Other piece, that's good. Yeah, no, and the only thing that's happened uh, moving sideways from that is that sometimes I have students who come from doing fiction who want to get into nonfiction. And when they start getting into it, they realize how much more complex it is because from my point of view, nonfiction is just more difficult to narrate than fiction period. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, I've, I've, I've seen you post that several times and, and I, yeah. I remember, a uh, an interchange between you and I think it was Jeffrey Kafer who were talking about that. And Jeffrey was in complete agreement. <laughs> yeah. And I've also had, but I've also had people argue against it. Like, no, it's all the same. Like, no, it's not. Right. You know, anecdotally and what I hear, it's not. It's it's more difficult to make this entertaining, which is the ultimate measure of an audiobook, isn't it? Is mm-hmm. it at the end of the day when you listen to an audiobook, whatever it is, you go, Was that entertaining to listen to? Yeah, absolutely. If somebody's listening to a history of World War Two and the entire thing was like fingernails on a chalkboard, mm-hmm. what's the likelihood that they're going to make it through the entire thing? So you, exactly. So you have to be entertained as you are listening to something that you are interested in. Right. No matter what the topic or genre. Right. And so, you know, and, 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 and there's a misnomer that people who do a lot of fiction think, well, I can do nonfiction. It's just, I'm a narrator already. And I've heard award-winning narrators do nonfiction and go, that was terrible. <laughs> you know, because... They don't understand the beast they're getting into. Right. There's a, it's like, I'll use the theater analogy. There's a difference between doing classical theater and musical theater and children's Christian musical stuff or puppet theater or whatever. They all different. They're all different. And unless you know the differences between those different venues or genres, you're going to make a lot of mistakes. And then ultimately, like I said, the ultimate measure was, was the book entertaining to listen to? Yeah. It's like Jeffrey, Jeffrey says, uh, he's, uh, he says, you know, he's listened to some amazing audiobooks recorded on mediocre equipment, but he's also listened to some really terrible audiobooks recorded in a great studio with a wonderful microphone and a director. Mm-hmm. You know, it gets back to, was it entertaining? Yeah. That to me is the ultimate measure. Well, that's great. I think that's a, that's a great note to end on. Yeah. So, so where can people find you? Um, they can find me, uh, well, right now my, my, uh, my website's under construction. So the best way to find me is through my, uh, email address at Sean Pratt presents, I'm sorry, Sean Pratt at Comcast.net. Okay. You can find me on Facebook at Sean Pratt presents. You can find me on Twitter at SP presents, and that's the best way to reach out to me right now. My, like I said, my website's under construction. Cool. Well, I'm sure you're going to get that fixed sometime soon. Oh yes. You know, websites are kind of a big deal now. Yes, people, I people well, get on the interwebs happened, and you know. You know what happened a year ago? My, I'm not kidding. This is true. My site got hacked by a Russian hacker. <laughs> <laughs> I 
he was I'm looking for, he, he knew that you were a liberal you were a tree I how did know, you put it a tree hugging i don't remember the rest of it but he knew that you were a liberal and he thought if i can get this website i can convince people to vote for trump i swear to god <laughs> i went on my own site one day and there was this you know the double eagle the uh-huh. old-fashioned symbol of old russia uh-huh it was on my site and I called the woman who ran my site. I was like, what happened? She goes, we've been hacked. <laughs> so I'm, I'm fine. I have a placeholder right now of my site. So the easiest ways to email me or reach out through Facebook or Twitter. That's great. All right. Well, Sean, thanks for coming into the audiobook speakeasy. It was great talking to you. I will be talking to you again soon in a yes. different, different capacity. <laughs> have and... you got your homework in? Buddy? <laughs> That's what I'm I will get it in on time. Don't worry. <laughs> But this was great. Thanks for coming by. I hope that the uh, the Oklahoma beer and the Oklahoma bourbon was uh, was good for you. My Four Roses was great. I just had to refill a few minutes ago because I uh, I ran out. But uh, yeah, I'm stuff, totally so. buzzed right now. It's fantastic. <laughs> a much more sophisticated <laughs> podcast interview, right? Yeah, right. I know. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's pretty pretty working class. I like that. Though. All right, that's great. Thanks a lot, Sean. Really appreciate you coming in. All right, take care, Rich. All right, bye bye. Well, that's it from the Speakeasy tonight. Many thanks to Sean Pratt for stopping by, and I hope you'll be able to join me next week when I'll be sharing a drink with audio engineer extraordinaire Amanda Rose Smith. You can find the audiobook Speakeasy on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podbean, and all the apps that pull from iTunes, like Overcast. And you can find me at richvoiceproductions.com, where I've got some samples and links to audiobooks I've narrated, a place where you can sign up for my monthly newsletter, and where I'm also posting episodes of the audiobook Speakeasy. As of right now, I don't have any sponsors for the podcast, and I don't have any plans to go out looking for any. There are some minor costs associated with producing a podcast, so I've set up a Patreon account. If you think this show is educational, entertaining, or valuable simply because it gives you an excuse to sit down and enjoy a cocktail in an otherwise hectic day, I'd really appreciate it if you could visit patreon.com slash speakeasy and donate a buck or two. And if you don't have any cash in the budget for podcast support, I completely understand. If it's comfortable to contribute, I greatly appreciate it. But if it's a sacrifice, please just enjoy the podcast. Until we see you here at the Speakeasy again, I hope you can enjoy an audiobook or two. Cheers! Cheers!